0: Heavenly Father, You want us to know You. And so You've made Yourself known through Your Son and Your Spirit has caused the words of Your Son to be recorded for us in this chapter. So Father, by Your Spirit, help us to understand Your Son's words that we might learn more of You. Not just that we might know about You, but that we might really enjoy and make the most of our relationship with you. The glorious God, our maker. And we ask this in Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen. Well, imagine that I can project onto these screens every prayer you've prayed this year. And we've read through them, one by one. What would we learn about you If we believe in an all-powerful God who loves us, who hears us, then surely what we ask him for would tell us a lot about us. It would show, wouldn't it, our big concerns, what really matters to us. Dear God, please let me somehow get some Taylor Swift tickets. She's everywhere at the moment, isn't she? Did anyone go see her? nice not bad must be nice must be very nice so you know what you what you pray for what what do your prayers reveal think just just take the prayers even from today yesterday this week well they're mostly for yourself for my job interview my exam my sickness my relationship what would that reveal my 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 me your big concern or is there perhaps not much prayer at all? As you read through the four Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, what you see is that Jesus prayed often. It says over and over again things like, He withdrew to a private place and prayed. He spent the night in prayer. And if even the Son of God needed to, love to, talk to His Father, how much more ought we? But we're often not told exactly what He prayed. Sometimes we get a summary which makes John 17 very, very special because it's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus that we have. It's the night before he died, Thursday night. By lunch the next day, he'll be hung on a cross. And he knows he'll die, verse 1. In fact, it hangs over the whole prayer. The hour has come. And yet what's striking as we've looked is even the night before his death, Jesus is not focused On himself, but on his father and his followers. And he spends the the last night teaching them. That's what we've been looking through. Chapters 13 to 16 are called the farewell discourse. But chapter 17, verse 1, after saying these things, he deliberately lets them hear his prayer. Verse 13, this, this suggests it's part of his teaching as well. I'm coming to you now. His death hangs over the whole thing. But I say these things, his teaching and this prayer, while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Joy. What a thing to be talking about at a time like this. He wants our joy, which he wants to be his joy in us. That's one of his goals. And so he doesn't leave the room to make the call. But he stays and prays so that they will hear of his relationship to his Father. So that they will hear his big concerns. Because to take these to heart will bring us joy. Now, Just to pause there. What a saviour. Yeah? Do you see his love? Even at this moment. Especially at this moment. If you're tonight with lots of people investigating, following Jesus, great to have you. Just look at who it is you are considering entrusting yourself to. You can trust him. See his love tonight. But tonight, don't just see his love. See what his big concerns are. And as we see that, it will teach us how to pray. But more than that, how to live. Let his big concerns become our big concerns, which Jesus says is the path to joy. And so what does he pray As as I've been digging into this passage, the image that I've got is of snorkeling over the Marianas Trench. Has anyone heard of this? This is the deepest trench in the ocean. Apparently it's 11 kilometers deep, which is deeper than an airplane flies. Hot is high, you know what I'm saying? This prayer of Jesus is is deep, it's amazing. Uh, We won't get through even a, a portion of it, but... It kind of might help to to have a big picture, right? So let me give you the big picture. There's lots in the passage, but it'll come up on the screen. There's only four requests. He says lots of things. He explains lots of things. He even gives reasons for the things he's saying. You can see some of those in orange. So that, because things that he's hoping will happen because of the requests that he's making. But in the original language, this is written in Greek, There are actually only four requests. They're in yellow on the slide. Verse 1 and verse 5 are actually the same request. Glorify me, he prays. Verse 11, then he prays, protect them. And verse 17, sanctify them. So you get two for his glory and two for his people. There's the two big things he prays for. God's glory... And his people's good. And you can roughly divide the passage that way verses 1 to 5, God's glory, verse 6 to the end, his people's good, although actually they're a little bit mixed together. In fact, the structure of this passage, I don't know if you've noticed in your growth groups this week, it's kind of like a spiral. It just keeps spiraling around these themes. But the big thing is, is right there. Verse 1 Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. He prays for the glory of God. Number two, the second big thing that he prays for is the good of God's people, but not just any good, their ultimate good. Notice the two requests, verse 11. Holy Father, protect them. Now he's not praying for their physical safety there. If he does, this prayer fails miserably. We heard uh, last couple of weeks how many of the disciples met untimely deaths for following jesus in fact he promises that uh, just at the end of the chapter before verse 33 he says in this world you'll have trouble he's not praying for their physical safety but for their spiritual safety that they won't be lost you can see that in verse 12 that they won't be lost but rather that they will stay true to god especially in a world which is against them and which is uh, where there's an evil one, the devil, out to get them. Look at verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. There's his first request. Second request, verse 17, is that the Father will sanctify them by the truth. The word sanctify is the word for holiness, that they'll be set apart as God's people and different to the world as they follow God And so there's Jesus' requests, Pretty straightforward in many ways. But then swirling around all those requests are all of these massive reasons why he asks for these things. Why does he pray for these things, protection and sanctifying? Verse 11, so that they may be one. So that they'll be united. God, the people of God are united in love as they are, verse 18 sent out into the world on mission. We'll look at this more uh, next week, but one of you, um, at the end of last year, there's this song, I think we'll sing it later, Driven by Love. It has this line in it, as the Father sent His only Son, so you are sending us. And one of you, good on you, like, is that biblical? It kind of sounds a little bit up ourselves. Sent into the world like the Father sent the Son? What? Good to be thinking, other songs we're singing, true, biblical. I was pleased to be able to take them to this verse. Yeah, it is biblical. Sent into the world so that people will be saved, verse 20, as they believe. Notice how you save believe through their message. That's how you become one of these people. So that all of these people might know their God forever. Verse 23, he even talks about having God in us and us in God. Verse 24, so that we might be with him and see his glory. There's a big picture. There's lots to unpack in that. And in fact, notice that he starts and finishes with God's glory being made known. But yeah, we're going to spend tonight and next week digging into those things. But already as we see that, I wonder if you can start to compare your big concerns with Jesus. What are your big concerns, your hopes? And how much like Jesus are you? How Christ-like are you? See what are Jesus's big concerns? Number 1, God He's God-centered, God's glory, God's people, God's mission to save. And so, you know, one application uh, from this passage could be we should make our prayers, not just our prayers, actually our concerns, which will show in our prayers, bigger than ourselves. You know, don't be selfish. Think of others. But you know you could do that and still not be like Jesus? Well, what about if we make it not just for others, but for the salvation of others. You're getting warmer, but you could do that and still not quite be like Jesus. Because you'd, you'd get everything right, except for the most important part. What does Jesus' prayer show is the bigger concern that we should have? What is it for Jesus? It's God. It's God's glory, even as Jesus faces the cross, which he's going to to save us. Even then, there's a bigger thing to, going on. God's glory is, is Jesus' Roman Empire. God's glory is, is Jesus' obsession. If you don't get the reference, you're probably good. You're probably not spending too much time on TikTok. Now, that's not to say that Jesus doesn't go to the cross out of love for us. In fact, it glorifies him partly because it's a demonstration of his love for us. But do you see that Jesus' number one concern as he prays about the next day he goes to the cross is God be glorified? Jesus' number one concern is God's glory. Where does it rank for you in your concerns that God would be glorified? One way to see that is to look at your prayers Another is to look at your decisions. As you make decisions, where does God's glory factor? Does it factor? Which of these options helps me show God's glory? Maturing as a Christian, which basically means becoming more like Jesus, is not about doing all your priorities a bit more the way Jesus would do those things. As part of it. But it's also about learning to have the same priorities as Jesus has. And so do you need to recalibrate your concerns tonight? As we, as we continue in God's Word tonight, let it do that to you. Let it shape you. Pray even now, God, I want to have a heart like Jesus. Shape me. Let me give you an example. What about when you're sick? How would you pray in sickness? Is it okay to to pray that you would be healed? Absolutely. It says in the Bible, cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. He cares for you. He, He loves to hear from you. Bring it to him. But is that the main thing that Jesus would be praying? What would he pray? Father, whatever happens, glorify your name in this I want you to heal me but if that's not your will then even more I pray protect me keep me from walking away from you make me holy even if it's through this sickness help me know you better even if it's through this. Help your church to grow in holiness. And if this is helpful for that, even if that... Bring others to know you, God, even if it's through this sickness. Oh, I want you to heal me. I hate it. I hate being sick. But even more than that, heal me, God, but even more, glorify your name. Even if that means not healing me, I'm in no way suggesting that that is a small thing to pray. But do you know what? The person who has absorbed that, they have joy, even in the pain. Yes, it hurts, but there's meaning in the pain. It's for something. It's for the biggest things. It's for God's own concerns. I wish you could have heard last, it might be on the live stream, last Sunday morning. Mandy um, goes to the morning services. She was up here and she was sharing about her battle with multiple diagnoses, including cancer. And nothing about it has been easy. But I wish you could have seen her joy. She was almost glowing. I checked, she wasn't glowing, just to say. She was almost glowing as she shared about the opportunities she was having in it to point people to Jesus. She had joy, unbelievable joy. Yes, pain, much pain, but joy as she waits for that day when she'll be with him and healed perfectly. Now, like I said, there's too much to cover in this prayer tonight, and so we're going to come back to the second part the good of God's people, next week. Tonight we're going to focus in just on that, the glory of God, what Jesus start and ends with. And so, have a look at verse 1. What does it mean? And is it selfish? Let me read it to you. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. What does that mean? And isn't it selfish to pray that? Once when I first got married, well, what am I trying to say there? Once, early on in being married to my still current wife, um, Monique and I would would try to pray together at the end of the day before we went to bed. We were just thrashed. We were just exhausted. And so sometimes things came out a bit jumbled. One night, I wanted to pray for God's glory and I wanted to pray for my friend Dale. Dear God, (laughs) pray that Dale would get the glory he deserves. And maybe he will. It's actually not the worst prayer. It would have been bad if it was giving more glory he deserved. In fact, it would have been really bad if it was God, give me glory. That's not okay to pray. Because to glorify God means to... Well, to glorify means to honour to show the splendor of, to make a big deal of, to to lift up, to put center stage, to put your names in lights. And so what do you call it when a person wants that for themselves? You call it pride. You call it attention seeking. It's ugly. It's selfish. Jesus' number one prayer point is, Father, do that for me. I want glory. Is that selfish, for Jesus to pray that? No. (laughs) Not if you see three things. Why he seeks it, how he knows it will be answered, and who it is that's asking. Let's have a look, first of all, why he seeks it. And there's two things to notice here. Verse 1 is that Jesus wants glory so that, look at verse 1, See the word that, so that, as I said, there are all these reasons through this passage. Here's one, so that the Son may glorify you, the Father. And so even in this prayer, Jesus is not self-seeking, he's seeking the glory of his Father. There's his motive. Here's number one. But secondly, why he seeks it is because he wants to give his people eternal life. Look at verse 2. Again, notice the word for. Because, we get another reason, for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. So Jesus sees a connection between asking for his glory and, and his people getting eternal life. Somehow those two things are connected and we'll see how in a moment. But first of all, I just don't, can't move on without pointing out verse 3 what it is about eternal life that makes it so good. Have a look at verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus didn't just save you so you could go to Disneyland in the sky. He saved you so that you could know God. I was trying to think if I know any famous people. Scott. My dad's second cousin is Pat Cummins. The Australian cricketing captain, which apparently is more important than the prime minister, some I'm saying. But I don't know him. I know about him. I know I know quite a bit about him, but I don't know him. My dad, on the other hand, I do know him. Uh, he was the um, he was in the second best school cricket team at his high school. He uh, once scored. 12 runs that was his top so yeah maybe not as impressive as Pat Cummins certainly not as impressive as God but I know him I don't just know about him the reason it's good to be saved is that you get to know someone far better than my dad good as he is you get to know God and that means that the best thing about eternal life actually starts in this life starts now and continues on forever And so let me ask you, do you have this relationship? If you've never come to know God, see what Jesus offers you. See what he, verse 2, has authority to give to you. And believe in him. And come to know your God. Begin a relationship with him. You can do that tonight. If you do know God though, let me ask you, are you taking advantage of that? Are you enjoying your relationship with God? Are you you praying? Let me push a little deeper into this. Is one of your big concerns to know God more? Now, I I know I said knowing about is different than knowing, but you can't actually know a person without also knowing about them. In fact, um, your relationship with them deepens as you know more about them. Even as an adult my relationship with my dad continues to deepen as I learn more about him as I learn more who he is his big concerns verse 6 look what jesus is on about he says i've revealed you father to those you gave me where's he done that verse 8 because i gave them the words you gave me which we now have let me encourage you let me urge you, make it a big concern of your life to deepen your relationship with God. And do that by learning more about Him. We're going to have a chance to do that tonight. We're going to go deep, as deep as we can, into this Marianas Trench. And so try to, to learn more about this God. But every week, be here. Don't miss a week. Be here and listen with your Bible open to see what we're teaching for yourself. Make, make your growth group a priority in your week. Read the Word as often as you can, with, by yourself, with other people. I was thinking what a shame it would be if God's people were more disciplined when it came to their work or their gym or their health than with knowing their God. There are some um, good parallels with the gym, actually. When you go to the gym, the key is consistency. You can't just go get buff in one workout. It's about the the habit of it, the consistency of it. Let me ask you, how are your habits of knowing God? Of knowing about God, of learning about Him? Is it time tonight to commit, yep, I'm going to get back on that horse? As I think about my life, I was trying to think, what's the greatest thing I've ever done? Far and away, to put my trust in Jesus, best decision I ever made. Getting married to Monique, up there. Somewhere up there is this, that by God's grace, early on in my Christian life, I got into a habit of reading my Bible every single morning. Different amounts, different times, a chapter a day, sometimes, sometimes more, sometimes less. But it's like, it's like your health. Don't go looking for a shortcut when you're not doing the basics right. First of all, do the basics well. Bible, prayer, God's people, and trust that God will use it to grow you. Now, can I encourage you, actually, um, one other thing in this space? So start with those things. If you're not doing those things, do those things. But as you do those things, can I encourage you one other thing as well? To make this year a year that you read a good Christian book, chuck a bunch up on the screen. If you're not much of a reader, you can audiobook it. Have we got it there, James? Um, but I think it's better to read it if you can, um, because I think you can process it more deeply. You can look up the references and see if it's right. But look, I'm not a great reader, honestly. I audiobook while I run. And I'll put this list together. This is not all the good books in the world, right? It's just some. But I think it's better to read one good one even if it's hard than a lot of trash. Again, similar to health. A good meal is much better than all the junk food out there, and there's a lot of junk food out there, particularly on YouTube. You can pull an injury if you do dodgy workouts. But a good Christian book is like a good, sturdy workout. The illustration's getting a bit stretched, isn't it? Stretched. Um, a good Christian book is like a good workout. It'll make you stronger. And so to so get a recommendation. I'll, yeah, That's why I put together a bunch. If you've never read a Christian book, just pick one and make it your aim just to read that one this year. You can read another one next year. If you've never read the first one, that's where I'd start if you read that and you've not read the second one, you get the idea. Now, how do we get here? Let me link us back. That's right, we're talking about, is Jesus' Christ selfish? And we're saying, no, it's not selfish. And we've seen that the first reason it's not selfish is because of why he seeks it. For his Father's glory and so that he can give eternal life to his people. And eternal life includes knowing God. That's how we got here. Um... And so, yeah, it's not selfish because he's not asking for himself. He's asking for the glory of his Father and the good of his people so that we can know and enjoy him forever. There's the first one. Here's the second reason it's not selfish. It's because of how he knows that this prayer will be answered. What's it going to look like for God to answer this prayer? What's he actually asking for? Well, he's asking that God will help him do what he came to do, to die on the cross and be raised. Now, that doesn't sound like glory, but if you come back to John chapter 12, you find that's exactly what he's talking about. John chapter 12 is the turning point in the book of John. Repeatedly up to this point, you get this phrase, the hour had not yet come. Chapter 2, chapter 7, chapter 8. You get to chapter 12, and for the first time, Jesus says in verse 23, the hour has come. It's just before the Passover, verse 1. He's on his way to Jerusalem, verse 12. Does anyone know what happens at the time of the Passover in Jerusalem to Jesus? He gets killed. And that's exactly where he goes. Some Greeks come to see him, verse 20, and Jesus replies, The hour has come. And straight away, verse 24, he starts talking about a seed dying to produce fruit. And he says, verse 32... When he's lifted up, he'll draw people to himself. And verse 33 spells out what he means by being lifted up. He said this to show how he'd die. Lifted up on a cross. So very clearly all the way through here, he's talking about his death to pay for our sins so we can have eternal life. But the thing to notice is verse 23, this is how he'll be glorified. Jesus replied, the hour of my death has come, the hour has come for the Son of Man... To be glorified. The world looked at a dead guy naked on a cross and spat on him and said, shame, not glory. But that's the world's way of looking at things, not God's way. Glory in God's way is not what seems impressive, but love, service, humility. And so it's as Jesus is lifted up to die that he's lifted up in glory. Come back to John chapter 17. How does Jesus Jesus expect God to answer this prayer? Glorify your son? He's asking God to help him the next day as he goes through with the cross. Help him keep going. Is that selfish? The very opposite. Jesus' glory is seen in his costly self-sacrificing love as he dies to save his people for his Father's glory. But it's not just the cross. Glorify me is also, verse 5, a prayer to be raised. Raised to life in the resurrection, then raised to the place of glory alongside the Father in the ascension. So look at verse 5 with me. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And this brings us to some deep stuff and the biggest reason of all that it's not selfish. Because of who it is that's praying it. Who is this who existed with the Father before the world began? Did you see that in verse 5? Jesus didn't begin at Christmas. That's when he came to earth as a man. Yes, but, it, but he existed long before that. Long before anything. Anything. And not only that, verse five, he says he has had glory with the Father, puts himself right up there beside the Father in glory and prays, Father, raise me to that glory. Now, if Jesus is right about who he's claiming to be here, God, equal with the Father, then this is not selfish. It's where he belongs. In fact, any less would be wrong. You want to talk about injustices in the world? The greatest injustice is that the one of greatest glory is pushed to the side. And so that's what he's claiming in this prayer. He's claiming to be equal with God the Father. Which brings us to the Trinity this chapter opens an incredible window into the life of our God. And I don't remember if I said uh, that this chapter is like snorkeling over the Marianas Trench. Well, what I want to do for a second is, is see if we can take a deep breath and dive down. And just see how deep we can go. Now, if you need to pop up for air, that's okay. Catch what you can, see what you can, and you can dive down again another time. But are you ready? Have a big breath. Let's dive down. As we read this prayer, what we see is that the Father and the Son are distinct persons. That's how they can talk to each other. That's how the Son can talk to the Father. And it's how He could, verse 5, be with the Father before the world began. They're distinct persons. See it also again in verse 24. The Father loved the Son before the world began, before there even was a universe. There was love. Not just the idea of love, but the Father loving the Son. So you see, distinct persons. Now notice I didn't say separate. You cannot separate the Trinity. Why? Because, second thing, they are one. Over and over again in the Bible, you get told there is only one God. At the end of verse 11, Jesus says that he and the Father are one. And yet, it seems that within this oneness, there's some kind of order going on. Now You can hear that in the names, father, son. A son is from a father, not the other way around. There's an order there. And this order seems to come up in a bunch of ways. There's lots of, uh, did you notice, lots of giving language From the Father to the Son, verse 6, I've revealed you to those you gave me. Hard not to see predestination, but that's another time. Verse 7, everything you've given me comes from you. Verse 8, you sent me. There's an order there, isn't there? There's a giving, a sending. Everything is from the Father and through the Son. But don't let that make you think that one of them is more God than the other because we also learn that they are equal. Verse 10, have a look. All I have is yours, says Jesus to the Father, and all you have is mine. Now just think about that for a second. All the Father has is Jesus's. Does the Father have more glory than Jesus? No, because Jesus has everything the Father has. Does the Father have more power than Jesus? No, Jesus has everything the Father has. More Godness? No. Everything the Father has, Jesus has. Where's the Spirit? He doesn't come up much in this chapter. But he did in the previous chapter. uh, And we saw that over the last couple of weeks. And from that chapter and a bunch of other passages, you can see all these same things. For the Spirit as well, He, not it, He, is a distinct person, equal and ordered in this one God. And so, put that together, we say that God is triune. Hear it in the name, tri, three, like tricycle, un, one, or trinity, tri, unity, three persons in one God. One God in three distinct persons, Father, Son and Spirit, equal yet ordered. Now, how are you going so far in a deep dive? Who's still with me? Oh dear. <laughs> Who's still with me? That's better. Okay. Um, this is mind-bending stuff. I wonder if your lungs are burning. If it is, I I want let the struggle move you to worship. Worship the infinite God who is eternal and, and so much bigger. We can't wrap our puny, tiny, finite minds around him. But I want to go deeper. I want to show you some of the ways that people have got this wrong. Because one of the most helpful ways that you can learn about God is to learn the mistakes to avoid. A bit like cleaning the smudges off the windscreen or or off your glasses. You get rid of the misunderstandings and it helps you think more clearly. And so have a look at this video. any one also can And that's, the the that's it see simple <laughs> now there you go there's some mistakes to avoid and i made a little summary sheet for you there uh do you see the key in all this is to try to hold on to all of the true things and not accidentally deny one. People go wrong when they, they hold on to one of them and in the doing of that they break another one in the way that they hold that one. And so um, just up here I want to highlight one that I didn't mean, that, that video didn't mention. Tritheism, because I actually reckon sometimes we might slip into that way of thinking. Tritheism, like a tricycle, is, is thinking that there's like three gods Possibly um, many of us have a little bit of this when we realise, yeah, okay, Father is God and the Son is fully God. And that's true, that's good. But without realising it, we can actually kind of be thinking that there's two gods who just kind of love each other a lot and they agree a lot and they're really good friends. No, no, no. We don't have two gods who agree a lot, we have one God. And so, for example, if you think that on the cross, the Father and the Son were kind of separated from each other, that's tritheism. Because Father and the Son are one God, how can they be separated? You can't separate God. But then don't slide from, okay, tritheism is wrong, don't slide from that into modalism, right? Don't hold one God in a way that denies the three persons, like um, Two-Face in Batman, you know, one person but two personalities, no, 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 Father, Son and Spirit are distinct persons, that's modalism, Patrick, the Batman thing... Um, Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct persons. You can't swap them. And so we don't thank the Father. We don't say, Heavenly Father, thank you for dying on the cross. Because the Father didn't die on the cross. The Father sent the Son. The Son died on the cross. They are distinct persons. And like you heard in that video, another really important one to avoid is Arianism, which is the idea that Jesus is like God, but he's not really God. The Father is the real God, and the Son is You know God's first creation, a lesser God. Now you can see why people might have thought that because son kind of sounds a bit like a smaller version of a father but that's not right, that's a heresy. The son is as fully God as the father is which is a point that John makes repeatedly. I think I've got some verses on the slide coming up. Um, It's a point that um, John makes repeatedly. Um, In fact, by calling himself the son, the unique son, Jesus is saying he's equal with God. We are sons by adoption, because we're adopted into Jesus. But Jesus is the Father's proper son, and therefore, he makes himself equal with God. Now, I know people will say, that's enough, my brain's bleeding out my ears, stop there. But can you handle just a little bit more? Can we dive just a bit deeper? Dan gives me the nod. All right, let's go. If you get lost, here's the way up. You ready? One God, three persons think about that, have a rest. But if you can come a little bit deeper, let me show you how the early church came to understand the son in a way that wasn't Arian, in a way that didn't make him a lesser god. I want to teach you a phrase, eternally begotten, which when I first heard it, I thought that sounds definitely wrong. But it's right. The son is begotten or fathered by the father, not made by him, but begotten what that means, it just means that the father gives his full godness to the son. It's a bit like how um, a human makes a human kid, sorry, not makes, bad word, Begets fathers, a human kid. When we, uh, we, we don't make a cat, we make a human, right? So make is a bad word, let's tell you again. We don't father a cat, we father a human, if we're a human. It's different when we make something. When I, ma- I'm, I once made a shelf. I'm very proud of it, it was a piece of wood and two brackets. Now, a shelf is lesser than me, right? But when we father something, it is equal with us. It's the same sort of thing as us. Now, don't hear me saying that the Son is like another being. It's the same sort. We'll get back to that. But you see that um, the Father gives his full godness to the Son. He begets the Son. But don't think that this is something that kind of happened one day. He's eternally begotten. He's always existed as the Son. And this is what makes them equal because the son receives the same godness that the father has and it's what makes them distinct because the son has always been the begotten one whereas the father has always been the unbegotten one and you can't swap that around. And it's what makes them ordered. The son is from the father. But how does that not make two gods? Like I said, if I have a son, my son is the same type of thing as me, but now there's two of us. Well, it's not like that with God. That's where God is different than us. This is not describing two separate gods, but it's describing one God and how the one God exists. He exists in two persons. Now, how does that work? Another phrase for you, mutually indwelling. And we've got a slide for that. Have a look at verse 21. I didn't hear many rustles. Have a look at Verse 21. You'll get a chance to read it. Have a look at verse 21. Um, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. This is how the three persons share in the one being of God, how they are one God together. The Godness of God is shared by each of the three persons, not by dividing them up amongst them. That's partialism, Patrick. But by them all being fully God, And all fully dwelling in one another, but not mushing them all together. That's mortalism, Patrick. Keeping the distinctions between the persons. So the Father is in the Son and the Spirit, and the Spirit is in the Father and the Son, and the Son is in the Father and the Spirit. And don't hear me saying that there's like this fourth thing, the real God, the godness of God, and it's like a computer program running these three beings. No, 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 that's mortalism, Patrick. What I'm saying is the one God is the three persons mutually indwelling one another. That's how God has his one being. That's what it means for God to exist as one God. Now, if that thinking about this stuff doesn't stretch your brain and move you just to marvel at God and worship him, I don't know what will. The cross will. <laughs> but this is the God who decided to enter into the world he made, who decided to die on a cross to sa- in the person of the Son, to save a people who had rejected Him so that we could know this God and be in a loving relationship with Him, Father, Son and Spirit, forever. I won't talk about the covenant of redemption, but that's the plan talked about in verse 2. The agreement between the Father, Son and Spirit before the world existed, that the Son would come and have authority as a the Messiah. There you go, I can't help myself. And that the Father would, would bring all people to believe in Him through the Spirit, that they might have eternal life knowing Him. All right well, you held your breath, let's come back up to the surface. What do we do with this? Well, one level, just, just see your God. Just see who your God is and realize why it is that we pray to the Father through the Son by the Spirit, ordered. They're all equally God, we could pray to any of them, but there is an order, just as everything is from the Father through the Son by the Spirit, so we pray by the Spirit through the Son to the Father. And as you see your God, recalibrate your concerns in life. And especially tonight, recalibrate this, glorify the Son. Is that your big concern? Your big goal in life, I want to glorify the Son to the glory of the Father. Does it shape your decisions, your hopes, your prayers? See tonight that it's right, appropriate, good to worship the Son. And in fact, unless someone worships the Son of God... the star the son of god unless someone worships jesus they are an idolater they might say they're worshiping god but they're worshiping something other than the true god because the true god is father son and spirit unless someone comes to the son they don't know god and so we need to bring people to believe in the son that they might have eternal life and know the god that made them and then once you know him Live your life to glorify Him. Now we're going to do that together as we sing, pray, and speak some words. I'm going to pray now. I think the band will come up. We uh, praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, the one true God, that you have revealed these majestic things to us that we don't really understand but we can, we can try. And so we pray, please, that we would live our lives Not for ourselves, but for your glory. Glorify Jesus in our lives, in our church, in our world, to the glory of the Father. And Lord, protect your people, sanctify your people by the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to do something together before we sing that Christians have done for centuries. We're going to read some words out loud together. In some ways, it's similar to singing, though Trevor would say it's missing a key thing. The music. But there are some similarities. As we do this, we declare what we believe as a way to praise God, to encourage each other, to remind ourselves, or maybe even just learn for ourselves, and help us remember deep truths. And as we do it together, we express our unity in those truths. So you should have a piece of paper nearby. If you don't have one, look around. There'll be one near you. And that's what we're going to read out together. We're going to stand in a moment. We'll read it out all at the same time. It'll be super weird, but not as weird as lots of what lots of people do these days. And what it is, is a part of something called the Athanasian Creed, which is a funny name because it wasn't written by Athanasian. Athanasius. Athanasius wrote in Greek. It was written in Latin. But it does express some truths that Athanasius spent his life helping Christians to hold on to, many of the truths we've seen tonight. And so as we read it out loud together, try your best as we read to understand what you're saying. Try to see how it expresses what we've seen tonight. And then after we've read together, the band will lead us in a song that we will help us to keep marvelling at, praising, glorifying our triune God. So would you stand? Let's read this together with me. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person and the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the holy spirit is uncreated the father is immeasurable the son is immeasurable the holy spirit is immeasurable the father is eternal the son is eternal the holy spirit is eternal and yet there are not three eternal beings there is but one eternal being so too There are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty. The Son is almighty. The Holy Spirit is almighty. Yet there are not three almighty beings. There is but one almighty being. Thus, the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, there is but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, there is but one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord... So Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods, or lords. The Father was neither made nor created, nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son." Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three Persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So, in everything, as was said earlier... We must worship their trinity in their unity and their unity in their trinity.